Well, this is good to be with you again tonight. Wednesday nights usually just home folks, and we're glad to see each of you and appreciate the interest you've had throughout the meeting. Appreciate the kind words that you've given to me, the encouragement you've given me, and I appreciate those very much. Brother Floyd Wallace one time, that's back in the days of protracted meetings, when they would decide during the meeting how well it's going, and then they decide how much further it go, depending on the interest that was shown. And he'd been in one for about 10 days, and he said on Wednesday, he said, well, it looks like that things are getting to where that the ham is running short, and so the chickens are running for the roost. And he said, uh, I believe it'd be a good time to close this meeting next Sunday. And one fellow back there th thought he was doing a good job. He spoke up and said, Brother Wallace said, don't do that. Said, we can run another week on side meet. Well, uh, we're not going to be able to run another week, but we've got, seems incredibly, that just two more nights after the night, and this series will come to a close. Tonight I want to turn to First Peter. First Peter, the second chapter, and we'll begin reading with verse 6. First Peter chapter 2, uh, 6 through 8. Wherefore also is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But to them which are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. In this text, uh, the Lord is pictured as being two stones in one. Uh, if you notice, he is one thing to those who are obedient. He's another thing to those who are disobedient. And if you notice in verse uh, 7, he says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. So he's a precious stone, uh, but unto them that are disobedient. And I'd like you to notice the contrast. I've used the King James translation, but uh, the contrast here, he says, unto them therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which are disobedient. He's using believe in the sense of obedient faith there. Uh, those who have the obedient faith, because he says, in contrast to them, those who are disobedient. The disobedient would be those without the faith that he's talked about. And the faith that he talks about includes that of obedience. But anyway, he says, the stones which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were also appointed. So to the obedient believer, he's the chief. He's the precious. He's the elect. To those who are disobedient, not having the faith of Jesus Christ, not having an obedient faith, they, he is a stone of offense. He's a stone of stumbling. We want tonight to focus on his being a stone of stumbling, our rock of offense. Uh, he mentions here in verse 8 how the, those who were uh, stumbling, they were those who um, were stumbling at the word and being disobedient. So they were stumbling at the word of the uh, rock that's precious. They were stumbling at the rock of Jesus Christ. And that being so, they stumble at the Word. So it was their attitude toward the Word of Christ that determined whether or not they were 
would consider Jesus Christ as precious or whether or not they would consider him a stumbling stone. Um, and many in his uh, lifetime on earth, many of those who were he contacted with during his personal ministry, uh, they stumble at his word then. When we talk about stumbling at his word, we just simply mean, and that simply means, at the things that he taught, it didn't sit well with them. And they stumble at it. They were turned off by that, as we sometimes use the word. So uh, his claims for being the Messiah, as being the Christ, throughout the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can read, where, did, where he would claim to be Christ or claim to have the power of God as the Christ, as the Son of God, it turned the Jews off. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah. They were looking for a different kind of king. They were looking for an earthly king that would come and would relieve them of the oppression of the Roman government and deliver them by rebellion and lead a rebellion against the Rome and therefore free them and make them a free people once again, no longer under the uh, yoke of Roman occupation. And that's what they looked for in a Messiah. He didn't meet that uh, idea. And when he didn't meet that idea of Messiah, they stumble at the word. And then, uh, as far as the Greeks were concerned, they stumbled because they uh, stumbled mostly at his miracles. Many of the Greek philosophers, particularly, they didn't believe uh, that those miracles at all were uh, miracles. They didn't believe that they were coming from uh, a divine or, or godlike uh, force. And uh, so these philosophers would uh, try to explain my way in some other, uh, by some other means other than divine intervention by the God of heaven. And that's the reason it says in 1 Corinthians that to the Greeks it was foolishness. Uh, to them, the idea of somebody being raised from the dead, such an outstanding miracle as that, how it could possibly be in their minds was foolishness. And even the contents of his message would stir up the Pharisees on occasion. You remember Matthew 15 that we talked about the other night. Uh, when the Pharisees uh, gave their... Uh, would give their take on the tradition of the elders and said that they need to wash their hands before they ate. Uh, the, uh, Jesus rebuked them for that. And when he rebuked them for that, it upset the Pharisees. They become offended at his word. He, they stumble at it. And as a matter of fact, uh, his disciples came to him and told him, don't you know that you offend the Pharisees? You offend them by what you said, and he says, let them alone. The blind lead the blind. They'll both fall in the ditch. And, but they were stumbling at what he said. And so, really, when we're talking about stumbling, in the sense that's used here, it basically means to offend, or it means to turn one off to. Uh, you would turn one off to that idea, and they would reject it. So I want to... In, the lesson tonight to show how that many today stumble at the word when it violates their perverted senses. They have certain senses that are perverted and the, the word of Jesus, either directly or through the apostles, they were words that turned off people of a certain mindset. And we'll notice in uh, Acts 26, and uh, verse 8, uh, some considered it uh, an incredible thing that there should be a resurrection. He says, why should it be thought to be a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? They thought, well, the idea of a resurrection, they evidently thought it was incredible. And he said, well, why, why then would you think this thing to be incredible that God should raise the dead? It was really a credible thing. But when they uh, heard it, 
they were offended at that idea of a resurrection. Uh, and the baptism for the remission of sins. Uh, the, the very fact that going down into the water, letting someone dip you in water, and raise you up from that water, and the very idea that that could have anything to do with the remission of sins turns some people off. You can just bring the subject up many times and you'll see how it's, they're turned off by it. And they were turned off by it in that day. I illustrate that by the case of Naaman. Uh, when uh, Naaman the leper, back in 1 Kings chapter 5, uh, went down to Israel to see Elisha the prophet uh, at the advice of a young slave girl, went down there to the uh, prophet for him to take care of his leprosy. Well, when the prophet, uh, I said when the prophet came to him, even before the prophet came to him, when he came into the Ascentia where the prophet was, the prophet first just sent his servant out and he told him what he needed to do in order to have his leprosy uh, uh, cleansed. And he told him to go dip seven times in the River Jordan. Well, when he got that message, it turned him off. He was wroth, it says. He was angry. He was offended by the very word of the prophet. The very idea that leprosy could be cured by washing seven times in the Jordan. And he thought if that would do it, the waters of his homeland were just as powerful as the word in Jordan, and that he could go there and be washed if that was the case. But finally, his servant tossed, talked some sense into his head and he came back and changed his mind and was uh, dipped seven times and cured his leprosy. Uh, now, it may not make sense to us that the Lord would make baptism, dipping in water, a condition of salvation. And it, to those that uh, are not really dedicated to the Lord, uh, of serving the Lord, it would not make sense. But why does it make sense to the Christian? It makes sense to him because the Lord said do it. The Lord said do it. And when one gets to the point where he can say, Lord, you speak. Your servant hears. Lord, you speak. I'll listen to what you have to say. And thus, not be offended by it. But many are offended by the very idea of washing in water for the remission of sins. They are offended, and many are offended today for that. So with that, they have a perverted sense of reason. As they reason, they try to reason it out by human reasoning, and their reasoning is perverted. The Bible teaches us that and that certain ones reasoned from the Scriptures to certain conclusions, used the Scripture as the basis of reasoning. But a perverted sense of reason is one that depends solely upon their own reason, the human reasoning, and you'll never get there with that. But if you reason from the Scriptures, you take what the Scriptures teach and reason from that, and if you reason correctly, you'll come to the point where you'll accept what the, scripture, uh, the Scriptures teach. It's a reasonable uh, gospel. It's not unreasonable. But you, if your uh, sense of reason is perverted, then it will be unreasonable for you. Uh, then again, there's also a perverted sense of loyalty. Many folks are uh, stumble at the Lord's way and the Lord's word because their sense of loyalty is kind of askew, is kind of, kind of perverted. Uh, they may not uh, submit to what the text actually says or what the Bible actually teaches. They may not do it because they have a sense of loyalty and it's a perverted sense, but a sense of loyalty to their family. If you notice in uh, Matthew 10 and verse 37, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now look at that and let it sink in just a moment. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Many have failed to obey the Lord 
because of the way that they think it might affect their father or their mother or their brother or their sister. Uh, that's a perverted sense of loyalty. You can still obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and put him as your first in priority, first in loyalty, and then to a lesser degree, you then can be loyal to brother, sister, mother, and so forth. But uh, the perverted sense says that you can't be loyal to what this says and what your family does or how they feel about it. So he says here uh, that if you love them more than me, they're not worthy of me. And sometimes one will say, well, if I do that, if I obey the, what you're saying or what the passage says, and I know the passage says that, but if I do that, then I'll be saying that my, and then the name of a relative or someone that's dear to him who's going on to say, I'm saying then that they were wrong and they're going to hell. Well, one needs to think just a bit about that. First of all, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, there was a rich man uh, and there was a poor man. <laughs> and uh, the rich man, he was a uh, one that prospered every day. But to make a long story short, so we can go to, to some other passages, uh, the rich man wound up in uh, Hades. And the Lazarus, the poor man, uh, wound up in Abraham's bosom. And then the rich man pled with uh, Abraham to send back uh, messengers to his brothers, lest they come to this place. Now here was a man that was uh, tormented by these flames, it says. And he was burning with the flames in uh, torment. And what, what did he think? What did he want? He wanted his brothers to know what was right so that, they, as he says, that they are not come to this place. So if I have a relative, I have a friend, or I have someone that's dear to me that has gone on and just say hypothetically, I'm not going to be the judge, and the Lord's the judge in all these matters. But uh, let me say hypothetically, they wound up, as has wound up, in torment. What would they, the most, most thing would be on their mind, and what would they want for you most at this time? To continue the course that you're going, the course that he had gone before he went. Or would they want you to change and take what you've learned to be the truth and obey it and so that you, you might not come, he says, to this place. So loyalty to a family, uh, our dear one, is a perverted sense of loyalty. Or it might be to a nation. The Jews had that problem. They stumbled at the word of the Lord because it went against what they considered the best interest of their nation. And they were uh, so wed to the nation of Israel fiscal Israel, that they uh, didn't want to follow the instructions of the Lord. And the traditions, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, 1 and 2, Why do uh, thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Uh, they are loyal to these traditions. They stick by them no matter what. And uh, it, no, it doesn't matter how many times you may point out what the Lord would have them to do and what the Lord says about it, they still will go with what the tradition says about it. We talked about traditions in another sense the other night, but I want to point this out, that many people today are what they are religiously, not because of what the Bible says. They believe what they believe in religion, not because of what the Bible says, but they are loyal because of what has been handed down to them, what the tradition has been all these years. And they're going to stay with that. Some time ago, uh, I got a letter from a lady up in the northeast, up out in New Hampshire. Uh, and she had somewhere or the other heard a, a recording or something of, that I preached along the lines of the plan of salvation and uh, the Lord's church and so forth. But in her letter, she pointed out to me that 
she wanted me to know uh, her background and her credentials. Uh, she wanted me to know that she was what her parents were, and she could trace it all the way back and said, uh, then the parents before them, and then the parents before them came over on the Mayflower. And so she uh, didn't feel like that she could or needed to give up that uh, religion of her parents and their forefathers. And she wanted to know that uh, she was a Christian. They were Christians, and therefore she was a Christian, and she could trace all the way back to the Mayflower. Well, the thing about it was, she was depending on what had come down to her rather than what the Bible says. And her loyalty was to that tradition rather than to the Lord. Uh, I didn't tell her, but I could have, that my ancestors didn't come over on the Mayflower, but they did. Some of mine probably made it. Uh, I've got a little Indian blood in me. Uh, and they probably met them at the uh, Mayflower. But the point is, again, uh, you may be, one may be what, and you have to understand that when you're talking with people. They, they have so ingrained in them the idea that they need to be what their parents were and what they believed and what they received from their parents and from their parents and so on down the line. But don't stumble at that. You don't need to stumble at that. That's a perverted sense of loyalty. The only loyalty that we need, and the first loyalty we need, is what thus saith the Lord. And then other, all other loyalties have to take secondary place. But many folks are stumble at the word of the Lord because it violates their sense of loyalty. Others are, are perverted, or have a perverted sense of values. They're what is really important, what's really worth something to them. Uh, the rich young ruler is a perfect example of one who had a perverted sense of values. Uh, his idea of value was possessions. That's what really he was going after. So he could possess certain values uh, and uh, certain wealth. If you notice in Matthew chapter 19, uh, in verse 16, beginning, this is a story of uh, one of the accounts of the rich young ruler. And it says, And behold, he came and said unto them, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, that's a wonderful question. You think about it, he couldn't have asked a better question. Good master, what shall I do that I may have et uh, everlasting or eternal life? Jesus said to him, If thou wilt be perfect or complete, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. To him, life's values depended on the possession that one had. His success in life depended on possessions which he had. And that's where he put his security. That's where everything was wrapped up. But he had a perverted sense of uh, value. I've often wondered, by a side note to this, I've often wondered when these people tell you or tell me when I talk to them about needing to be baptized to be saved, they'll say, well, the thief on the cross was never baptized to uh, be saved, and I can be saved like the thief on the cross, and I'll take my chances with that. Well, I never had one of them to, to point to this passage and say, I'll go with the rich young ruler. Uh, he was told to go sell that which thou hast and give to the poor. I've never heard anyone say, I'll be saved like him. Well, he wasn't saved that way. He was a young man who was wrapped up in his possessions, and he had a perverted sense of really what mattered, really what values uh, he should have. Uh, kind of like the ones who were seekers of loaves and fishes. In John chapter 6, in the 6th chapter, in verse 26, 
Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. Labor not for meat which perisheth, but for meat that endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now notice, he says, You seek me not because you saw the miracles. That was the evidence that he was the Son of God. But they, they didn't seek him because of those miracles. They saw him for the loaves and the fishes. He turned the, uh, in, a, in a miraculous way, he turned a very small amount of food into a, a mountain of food. 5,000 to be fed on one occasion, 4,000 to be fed on another occasion. Uh, but these, they didn't seek him because of the miracles, but what they sought him for is that they were able to eat the loaves and the fishes. They were seeking him because of the material advantage it was. And he warns them to labor not for meat which perishes or food which perishes, for that food or meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give unto you, for him hath God, hath God the Father sealed. So he's saying now, the real thing, what you really need to seek for, is the proof of the Son of God. And when you uh, learn that and accept that, you have your values straightened out. But don't labor for the food that perishes. Not, don't follow me because you got your stomach full. You follow because of the proof that I'm a Son of God, the miracles which He did. Uh, the social gospel ideas along those same lines. Uh, it's not a matter of right and wrong per se in a lot of cases. It's a matter of where you place the emphasis. Whether you emphasize the spiritual over the fiscal or the fiscal over the spiritual as our mission uh, in the world and the Lord's mission in the world. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, uh, if you remember, there were some widows that were being neglected by the daily administration of the church there had widows they needed to take care of. And they were taking care of them, but there arose a murmuring of the Grecian, that would be the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, against the Hebrews, and that would be the Hebrew-speaking Jews, uh, that their widows had been neglected in the daily administration, or daily distribution. Well, uh, the uh, apostles were at that time still in Jerusalem, and overseeing the church of Jerusalem. At that time, the, the church of Jerusalem did not have elders yet, but they didn't need elders because they had the oversight of the apostles uh, there at that time. But anyway, uh, they set about to solve this problem and want to notice a thing or two there. In verse 2 of Acts 6, Then the twelve, that would be the apostles, called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look out from among your, you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and with wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to minister the Word. Now, was he telling them, hey, these tables don't need to be served. No. Was he telling them that these widows did not need to be uh, taken care of by the church? No. That was neither case. But what he's saying was, uh, let us, the apostles, let give us the uh, uh, opportunity to give our time and our uh, work primarily to that of studying the Word and ministering to Word. And then the, appoint some to do the other, uh, that we will not have to leave ministering the Word to serve tables, that is, to wait on the, uh, those who are in need. 
even those who need would need the help. Yet the priority was to be upon the word. Uh, the social gospel uh, is the idea that in in our day and time that the primary work of the church is social, and the primary work of the church is benevolent, uh, and the primary work of the church is to take care of the body, and then they neglect the soul. But the uh, primary work is not the take care of the body, it's to take care of the soul. But there is a place for the other, but it takes a secondary role. Uh, it's a matter of where you place the emphasis. The social gospel, they look for social and recreational activities when they're looking for, quote, a church family. If you ever noticed, uh, when in recent years, somebody will come by, maybe either visiting or come by your place, uh, your home, and they've moved in the community and they're looking for a place to worship. And a lot of times I've had them to ask, what kind of program do you have for your children, uh, for young people? Well, what they mean by that, what type of recreational program do you have? Or what uh, sort of social program do you have? And then they'll ask you a dozen other questions, and every one of them will have to do with some social activities, some social program. What do you have for singles? What do you have for this uh, group and that group? Uh, what, what kind of ball team do you have? And so forth, so that our children will be uh, able to participate in. No, a perverted sense of, of values results in that sort of thing, and people stumble. Sometimes, if that's all that you do, is that you uh, put forth to the mission of the church as the spread of the gospel and the care for the needy saints and to edify the church. That's all it's, uh, it's involved in, and not involved in some social or recreational uh, activities. Then they stumble at it. They go somewhere else, and they won't know part of it. Jesus has been a stone of stumbling for many, for many uh, generations. And there's also the matter of the personal sense of dignity, uh, or a perverted sense. Uh, back in the Old Testament, when, say in 1 Samuel 8, the children of Israel were under judges, as God would appoint judges from time to time, that was their government. And they had God is king. And these judges would be raised up from time to time when they need special deliverance. And, uh, but the bulk of the Israelites didn't want that. They were tired of that. And they wanted a king uh, for several reasons. But one of the reasons had to do really with so they could be as quote or unquote dignified as the nation around about them. If you notice here in 1 Samuel uh, 8 and verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. Samuel had tried to persuade them against it. He tried to persuade them out of the idea of putting a king over Israel. And uh, they said, though, after all of his persuasion, they said, nay, or no, but we will have a king over us. A lot of times when you talk with people uh, about some innovation, their final answer always generally is, I know, but we're going to have it. Now what are you going to do about it? But they said, we will have a king over us. And verse 20 says, in First Samuel 8, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. We want to be just as uptown as the rest of them. We want, the, just like the nations around about us, they've got their king that represents them. We want a, the pomp and the ceremony of a king that represents us. And they, their kings lead them out to battle. We want a king to lead us out to battle. We want to be as much like them as we can. And so they would stumble at, stumble at the idea of just 
having judges, like God had provided for them all that time, they now wanted something more. And the reason they wanted something more is because they wanted to be like their neighbors. They had a perverted sense of dignity. Elisha's uh, healing arm, telling uh, Naaman rather, Elisha telling Naaman what he needed to do in order to have his leprosy uh, taken away, that offended his sense of dignity. You know what he said? Behold, I thought. I thought he'd come out and he'd wave his hands over me and he'd do th such and such. And he stumbled at it first and finally had to be persuaded. Uh, pointed teaching of Jesus to his apostles sometimes uh, would offend the sense of dignity of others. Simplicity of the gospel system is offensive to some. Some won't, uh, don't like the simple gospel system because it has too little pump and ceremony with it. They look around about and they see the pump and the ceremony of the various religious groups that claim to be Christian. And they are just too simple, too backwoods to suit them. They want to be more pomp and ceremony like the worship services of the denomination of the world. Or they look at us and they look at their neighbors and most of their neighbors have gone to an quote unquote educated ministry. They need to have uh, them a preacher that has a string of degrees after his name to show that he's educated that has to have a BS, MS, MA, MS, or PhD, whatever. And uh, they are offended when a one is brought in that may not have all those degrees. He may have studied the Bible many years. He may be a good Bible student. But their idea of a educated ministry is a degreed ministry. And the reason for it it's not prestigious enough that they cannot advertise their preacher with all those degrees so they can match the neighbor's church and their preacher and parade all those names as well. Uh, somebody asked me one time, how many degrees do you have? And I said, I really would rather not say, but I will say this. I've got all the degrees it takes to preach that's 98 when I'm normal. Uh, so the, the idea is a, so a false sense of what real dignity is all about. The real dignity in the eyes of the Lord is those that were more noble than they of Thessalonica in they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things are so. They were noble, they were more had more dignity than any. So if one preaches the word, then of course uh, he needs to uh, not worry about the other things. Sometimes it's a perverted sense of taste that people stumble at, and they did with Jesus as well. Uh, and it is modern times, the modern state of entertainment, uh, taste of entertainment. We live in a time where we've got to be entertained at every level, all the way from... Uh, little folks in school all the way through college. And if you can't make your uh, uh, teaching entertaining, then it's not doing any good. Uh, so, uh, and it's by this notion that our worship sometimes is measured. Uh, we have a sense of taste, and our taste is for sound bite, sound bite uh, worship uh, that uh, somehow has incorporated in it uh, some a bit of entertainment to be enjoyed and then if you can't make it enjoyable through entertainment mixed in with it then it's not real worship and preaching is measure, measured by the same way uh, and there are also extreme tastes for worship uh, some have a taste for formal worship they go to extreme in that and turn the worship service into a mil military like precision performance rather than a 
time where you worship the Lord from the heart, each one, as you're assembled together. Others have the taste of spontaneity, spontaneity. That is, their taste is that the best worship is just to pop up and somebody back and call out a song number and start singing. Or somebody just pops up and starts uh, reading the scripture. No order about it whatsoever. Uh, some uh, have even gone to the point now of making the Lord's Supper more casual. Uh, that you meet around the table and you sit there and you talk like you do at a common meal. You eat the bread and uh, drink the uh, fruit of the vine, carry on a conversation. If you don't have a table, you all get around on the pew. You, while you're partaking of it, you turn to the next person, you discuss the matter, uh, maybe about the, what it all means, and you just carry on a conversation back and forth between the two of you. Both of those extreme ideas is, comes out of a perverted sense of taste. The observance of the Lord's Supper, as depicted in the Scripture, is very simple. It was explaining to the people what was being done, giving thanks for the fruit of, uh, of the uh, fruit of the vine and for the bread, partaking of it, and that was sufficient. Uh, sometimes people want to turn it into a grand show and want to turn it into something more than that and put so much emphasis on that that they almost turn it in, as I said a few minutes ago, to a military-type precision uh, performance. The Lord's Supper is a, to be observed from the heart. The Lord's Supper is to be observed remembering the Lord's death. And it's not some sort of performance that's put on to impress the world of how much you appreciate the Lord's death. But it's what you do to appreciate, to uh, speak to God and to speak to Him and let Him know how much you appreciate the death and for this uh, memorial of that death and show it by participating in an orderly way and from the very heart then you've done the Lord's Supper correctly. It doesn't have to be a Broadway performance in order to get the uh, job done. Then there's a perverted sense of justice uh, that some have and cause them to stumble at the word. Abraham uh, was told to go offer Isaac upon the altar. Well, Abraham believed God. And he did just what God said. But Abraham could have looked at that and said, well, wait a minute. This is, not, this is not a fair thing to do. Why should I kill this young child? Why should I kill him uh, at the, the, your word? Uh, why should I? It's just not fair. It's not fair. Well, first place, anything that God tells you to do, you can count on it being fair. Now, second place, God said do it. And Abraham had the faith enough to believe that God would bring it all together for good. And God did bring it all together for good. He, even, he knew that God would uh, take care of his promise that through his seed the nations of the earth would be blessed that God was powerful enough and willing enough to do that. And even though it, uh, his sense of reason, or justice rather, may have said, hey, that doesn't make sense. This is unjust to put the son through that. No, God had a purpose in it. But he had such faith, he believed that God would make good his promise even if you had to raise him from the dead, that kind of faith. Uh, sometimes people will say, Jehovah's Witnesses particularly, will tell you, listen, the very idea of hell is not uh, what you would think of a good, just God giving. How could God be a just God? How could be a loving God? And then allow people to burn forever in eternal hell.
Well, that's their sense of justice. And God's sense of justice is an offense to them. And because it doesn't fit their sense, they reject it. Uh, and when we talk about uh, there being one body or there being one church, that offends the Protestants. And they uh, don't accept it because they cannot see, as they say. They cannot see how that the Lord would only save those who are in his body or in his church. But what, what you're really saying, the Lord only saves the saved. Those who are in his body are the saved. And uh, so one with a perverted sense of justice, they might say, well, that's not fair. Well, the Lord has his own standard of fairness. And one day, we may not understand it all now, but we will understand, understand it the by and by. Marriage and divorce uh, and remarriage question. Many times people won't, uh, will say it's just not right for one to be left in a position where they can't marry again, or it's just not right, not fair, uh, that this or that should happen. But whatever God says about the matter, He has His reasons. And He knows what's best. He knows the beginning from the end. I need to obey what He says, even though it may not seem fair to me. Do what He says about all these things. Follow His Word, and He'll take care of the result eventually. And, of course, uh, people, how many times have you heard a person say, well, I just don't believe, this is another, on another question, I just don't believe that the Lord wants me to not have a good time. I just don't believe the Lord doesn't want me to be happy. So I love dancing. I love uh, to wear my uh, attire that I wear regardless of whether it's modest or not. Uh, and I just don't believe the Lord would deny me uh, all of this. And what they're saying is, basically, basically, I don't believe the Lord would deny me the pleasure that I see, what I want out of all this. But, and, they, and not believing that the God would deny them of that pleasure, then they've got a perverted sense of pleasure in that they don't find the most pleasure, where the most pleasure can be found, and that is in serving the Lord. The only lasting pleasure that one can have is to be on the Lord's side. And whatever that is, we need to do that and not decide, well, this is, the Lord wants me to be happy, and I know that He wants me to be happy, therefore this cannot be wrong if I'm happy doing it. Uh, I had a relative not too long ago. I tried to, in a nice way, to tell him he didn't need to uh, divorce his third wife and marry a fourth. But, and we was talking about it, and I uh, uh, talking about it through uh, Facebook and uh, email, but that he didn't need to do that. And his answer was, I'm, I'm happy with it, and I believe the Lord wants me to be happy. I don't believe he wants me to be sad and to always be uh, uh, in a depressed, unhappy mode. And that's the way I am without a woman. And so he believed the Lord would uh, approve of that, let, it, let him have that. Well, he had a, percentage, a, a very perverted sense of pleasure. Where the real pleasure is, is in the world, Lord's Word and doing His will, and that pleasure of doing His will will last forever. So how do we cope with the word of stumbling? Uh, well, sometimes we may just reject it like the Jews do. We might repress it like the rulers did. Or we might even redefine it like Jeroboam of old did when he told the children of Israel that he'd made these caves and he gave it to them. He said, Behold the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He redefined God uh, in that. So they redefined it uh, to fit the changing times and to fit the circumstances. But 
what one needs to do if something that the Lord teaches offends you and when what he teaches offends you the Lord offends you and if the Lord offends you uh, we need to reconsider our position not the Lord's position and we need to re reconsider that like Naaman did Naaman he had enough sense to know that he needed to re redefine if he was going to get healed he had to redefine his position and he submitted and went ahead and received the promise that was given to him for dipping seven times in the River Jordan. Uh, so if we're considered, reconsider, do the Lord's will, uh, even it may cause some temporary adjustments, it may, uh, hard adjustments, it may even uh, cause some uh, bit of a strain on <laughs> us and a lot of other things. But once you're through it and become dedicated to the Lord's will, we'll be made stronger for it. We may suffer temporarily, but we are stronger for it, always doing what the Lord said to do. The scriptures teach us that the Lord uh, not only came to bring us salvation, but he also... Uh, that we might suffer for his sake. So we are to suffer his, for his sake. And if we have to suffer for his sake, do it. And then and not be offended by what he says. Then we'll be in a position to go to heaven when we die. You may be here this evening and you're not a Christian. You need to obey the gospel of Christ and be raised to walk in new lives and do the will of the Lord. Whatever he says, do it. Uh, it, there be times, there be times when you uh, obey the Lord and uphold His will that you indeed will be a rock of offense and a stumbling to some. But you'll always be on the Lord's side. And the Lord's side is the side you have to be on if you plan to go to heaven when you die. If you accept the Lord's invitation, come while we stand, while we sing.